guess I want to first say, I, I see that too, right? Like I see, I see what it is to live in a world where you want it to be easier. You want it to, to go away if you don't look at it. I understand the charms of the, that magical thinking. And I also understand the pain of looking at it. I understand when you start to unpack what it is to really look at whiteness. I think you have to go into dark places. You have to feel ashamed. You have to feel grief. You have to feel culpable. And so those feelings are not fun, right? Like those are not fun. And and I guess I want to say that every time a white person turns away from those feelings, that's white privilege because we can. And if we say we don't want it, we say we want a just world. And we have to notice when we're being unjust, that's not that's an unjust move. That is a, a move that says, I'm gonna use this thing I didn't earn and I am gonna take the easy road because I can. Today's episode is a very special one. We are right in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement with protests happening in every on every single continent all around the world. And an article popped up on my LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago. And it's by today's guest. And it flashed up and it said, confronting my white privilege, which piqued my curiosity. I wanted to know what this white, Harvard-educated, Harvard professor had to say on the topic of race. And I was not expecting it. It was a very open, raw vulnerable piece where she talked about white shame, white fear, white fragility and it was someone who had done the work and was doing some more work on herself, someone who realised there was a need to change and shift and she was making plans to do that within her organisation and someone who was saying that you know what I don't have all the answers but I know I can't stay silent, that's worse. It's someone who even from her article that was open and he was an ally straight away. And so I reached out to her and invited her to come on the podcast. And she said yes, to my surprise. And we have a great conversation. So I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. Like, subscribe, share. And let me know what you think about it. Today I have um, the author, the CEO of Cultivating Leadership, um, coach, thought leader, Jennifer Garverberger with me. How are you doing, Jennifer? I'm doing super well. Thank you. Um, it's a wonderful pleasure to have you on. I have read some of your books. I'm um, obviously been working in the same field. I've listened to some of your interviews. And in particular, the last week or so, I think it was a couple of days ago, you wrote your article confronting my white privilege. And it was a very open, raw, vulnerable piece, to be honest. And um, as I read and I started going through, I was like, I just, I really wanted to talk to you more about it. Because one thing I've said in this period has been, people who have stayed silent and stayed quiet, you can't really have a conversation with them. But people who are willing to actually confront what is going on head on and be like, actually, I might not have the right words to say, but I'm willing to have a conversation around it. And I've looked into it myself. Those kind of people I definitely want to talk talk about and talk to. And you're one of those people. And I'm just reading from the first 
paragraph <laughs> in your article when you talked about um, 2016 when you were in New York with your son. I think you talked about your son was running through um, New York and you you flash back to say the fact that if he was black, he wouldn't be able to do that because people's expressions will be very different if it was a young black kid running through. What made your mind go to that? Because it just seemed to come out, completely come out of the blue when I was reading that. It came out of the blue for me. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. I was a minority kid in my schools. I grew up, I went to mostly black schools. It's not like I hadn't thought about race before. And as a professor, I had taught about white privilege. But there was something in that, like that moment, I cannot tell you how powerful that moment was for me. I watched my, you know, he's a teenager. He's running through these city streets. People are kind of smiling at him. And I had like the sense of joy. He has his own agencies, like running through a city. Like it's such a beautiful thing. It's about this hobby that he loves so much, this kind of quirky film photography hobby he had that he loves so much. And it was as if you dipped me in ice water when I realized this thing that I'm feeling, that's called white privilege because if this kid were black or brown then he would be in danger right now running happily through the street he would be in danger right now and um it makes my eyes fill with tears even now when I when I caught up to him I was in tears and he was like what happened to you you know like because because literally nothing had happened nobody said anything nobody didn't like nothing had happened but I obviously cannot shake that feeling of um I think I I totally knew in my head before that moving through my life the way I moved through my life um, was always, always dipped in white privilege. But in that moment, I understood that it was a, it was so much bigger than I had ever known. Around that same period, like July 2016, was around the um, Anton Sterling, Fanny Castillo period as well, when this happened last time as well. So, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And between then, you talked about the fact that you, you felt all that emotion inside of you, but you struggle to talk about it and to express it how come so i i i think words fail me right like i tried to write about it i tried to um you know because i'm a writer i tried to write about it and everything i wrote was either it somehow just couldn't get across the emotional experience because i don't i don't want to look like i know what Mm. the black mother's emotional experience is i don't know I don't know. I don't know. Um, So I didn't want to look like arrogant, like, oh, now I know a thing. Um, And at the same time, it was such a powerful physical and emotional experience. It was like I getting that power in without making it look like, oh, now I know something that I couldn't possibly know that... I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And then I have this voice in me that says, like, what right have you to talk about this? This is not for you to talk about. You you should listen in this space. Like, in the space of race, listen. Like, don't say. Yeah, so I stopped. And why, why now? Four years later, you just completely let it all out. Obviously, what's happened with, with COVID and now what's happening uh, with George Floyd and the last um, couple of weeks with the riots, the protests, everyone's speaking up now. So why, what has changed in those four years for you? I think the thing that I got these last weeks is that silence is its own kind of violence, 
right? That, that not speaking, I had been doing things quietly, right? Like I had been working in my own way, caring deeply about these issues, but quietly. So as not to say like, Hey, look at me, I'm working on these issues. Like it felt like there was something kind of attention seeking about that for me. And that's it. Like, that's my stuff. I feel attention seeking whenever I say anything publicly. So like like we could talk about my childhood and, but it was the, it, it was the realization that all voices are needed on this issue, that all of us, all of us, all of us need to be paying attention and um, paying attention privately, quietly is just another form of white privilege. It's just, it's just another form. Mm. When you talk about white privilege to you, what does, what does that mean? I think it's all the, all of the stuff that happens to me that makes my life easier because I had white parents, right? I was born with this color skin. All, all of the times that I don't look around a room and think I'm the only one of my kind here, you know, all the times where I don't wonder whether this or that is happening to me because of my race, like all those times. And now I understand all the ways I feel about letting my son go out at night in London, you know, letting him hang out with his friends, um, you know, all that, all of it. Looking at your own thing you talked about was your organization. So obviously you've from an educational perspective, you felt the emotion that you felt those years ago from right now, for example. But yet your organization hasn't necessarily reflected your your chain of thoughts. So, and obviously there are a lot of organizations who are like that. Most of them are like that right about now. So I wanted to kind of understand, one, how is it possible that that's kind of happened from your perspective? And then going forward in the future, what are you thinking about? Obviously you start to make some changes now, but even we can talk about that a bit more as well. Yeah, so... It's the thing we've been talking about for years. Again, mm-hmm. talking. Um, it's the thing we've been talking about for years and trying to figure out how do we recruit people into our organization, people of color into our organization. And the the way our organization works is um, generally we come across someone. Uh, they take a program from us. They're another consultant working at a client, you know, I run a leadership development firm. And so everybody in the firm, we sort of have happened upon, right, in some way or another. And um, we've had this mission um, to diversify for years. And the thing is, we just don't happen upon right? Like, like, again, is that there's a kind of a passive awareness, watchfulness, desire thing that has not been working. It's just not been working. There aren't very many people of color in the field in general. And the ones that we know have been most of the, most of the ones we've come across are like employed by the, the organizations we serve. And so they've been kind of off base. We don't have poach people from organizations, right? Like that doesn't, doesn't make you popular. And also why would they want to come and work for us when they're working for, you know, some big fancy company? So we just have not, we have not happened upon um, people of color who were looking for uh, um, the sort of organization we are. And uh, they say insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. Right. And so I guess we were insane for, the last few years is we've been really trying to work on this as an issue. And so this year we said, okay, let's not happen upon, let's say 
people of color can just take our programs for free because this is what, um, this is where we meet people who come into our organization. Like this is kind of the, the gathering place, the watering hole where we bump into people, we meet them, we know them. Okay. If we really want this, like let's change the people who come to our programs. And we tried to do that with recruiting and reaching out to people and saying, Hey, if you'd ever want to come to our program, blah, 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 there'll be a discount. But like we'd done all those things and it hadn't worked. So now we're like, okay, forget it's just free. Like it's just free. Just come, just come. Can we just come, just come. We want to learn from you. We want to learn with you. We want to get to know you like, just come. And so, um, a lot of people are coming. That's good. That's it's it's definitely needed. I mean, I've been to um, events like I said, working at leadership coach as well. I've been to events where you walk into the room and you look around you, and it's just that's where it's one last year. And literally, I was just the only black person there. And my first instinct was just to walk back out. I was like, I just didn't feel invited into that room, into that space, and it just felt a bit like they don't really want me here. Yeah. I know I need to be there because I paid to be there, but they don't really want me here because there's nothing and no one around me that I can automatically feel any bond or any resemblance whatsoever to. And it felt really, really awkward, to be honest. So it's it's brilliant to actually hear that you actually opened up and be like, you know what, just, just come in and we're going to see what happens from there. Just come in. We're trying, like, we're trying to figure it out together, right? We're trying, if we care about changing the field, changing the world, changing what's possible... We're going to make a hundred million mistakes, but let's, it's better to make the mistakes than mm-hmm. to, to not. This is where, this is where we are. And when it comes to having difficult, tough, uncomfortable conversations like, like this around race, for example, what have you done personally? And then obviously with your circles and the people that you serve, have you had those kind of conversations with them as well? Because you're very, very good at, um, when you talk about listening, you are great at listening. <laughs> Everyone in the interview listen to you talking about, you're really, really great at listening and just letting people talk and let it all out. So for you, how has that actually happened with, in regards to talking about race, talking about your fears and communicating there? So as a leadership team, we've talked about it. And we, uh, several years ago, we tried to partner we tried for a while to partner with a, a firm that was like ours, but aimed at social justice. Okay. And, um, and they were mostly, it was just super diverse, super diverse um, organization. And ultimately, and, and we created action learning groups with them and we conversations with them. And ultimately they kind of decided we were just too white for them and uh, they don't want to work with us anymore. And there's lots of other stuff going on in that organization and their mission changed and their name changed and their leadership changed, like lots of stuff was happening. But they, they were sort of like, we, we don't have time to educate you. Like we have a big mission. We don't have time to educate. So what have we been doing? We've been having that conversation. We've just started a series of conversations in the firm about these ideas and they're beautiful and they're hard. And, uh, and we're, we're also very global. And the, the experience of race and racism is just different in different parts of the world, right? Like it's a, there's, there's racism everywhere you look. Um, but the, the way it lives is different in Lebanon than it is in, um, Denmark than it is in New Zealand, right? Like than it is in the U S than it is in England. 
so people are trying to get their heads around the cultural differences, plus the race differences, plus the gender differences. We're obviously a, a woman-led firm. And so we had these conversations about genders. People are trying to make their way into that kind of understanding. I'm much happier to listen than to say by and large, like, I, and the whole thing makes my difficult conversations in general, which I teach how to have well, um, make my palms sweat. They, um, they make my mouth dry. You know, they make my heart. Yeah. So I sit with that discomfort, um, which is like what tiny fraction of, would that be compared to the discomfort you had when you walked into that room of all white coaches, right? So this is the thing that sort of is pushing me on now is to just understand that everything I experience is a drop in an ocean um, compared to what people who are really suffering in this space have experienced. And I think that's um, that I actually got from just reading your um, your blog post anyway, and obviously having this conversation as well. And I think that also is another level around the whole understanding piece, which we're going to come back to in a minute, because it just shows that you are actually, obviously you can't, it's not your lived experience, but you are taking the time to really listen, actively listen, which obviously we know the difference is that you're actually taking on board, you're listening, you're reflecting and saying, actually, I can try and put myself in that person's shoes and actually here's what I get. So imagine if I was really in their shoes, here's what it's going to feel like. So that's um, really, really good to hear. And one thing that you touched on is the organization you previously worked with, they, they felt it wasn't your, their place to educate you. Um, how do you feel about that when it comes to the education piece? Do you understand the reason why people are actually saying, like, you know, it's not my place to educate or people when it comes to race and they need to do that work first? And then we can have a conversation around it. Or how do you feel about that? Oh, my goodness. This has actually been one of our hurdles. I understand that too well. Um, There's a way that that idea, somebody on our conversation on race this week, somebody called me on that as like a blind spot of mine that I that I like try to go off and do my work over here and not bother other people and like not disturb them. And um, Akasha, who's uh, who's co-holding the space with me, he's an Afro-Caribbean man. And we were co-hosting this conversation on race together. And he said, when, when you say you don't want to bother me with that, it makes me feel like you don't believe I'm strong enough to handle it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you don't believe I'm strong enough to say no to you. And so um, I, don't, I don't need you to protect me from this. And then I was like, now I don't know what to do, right? Like on the one hand, I don't want to say, help me, I need you, right? Like devote your time to me, school me, because I need this, because I can't understand your experience unless you talk to me. So I don't want to say that. And at the same time, when I don't say that, I can see that that's like removes from him the agency of having the conversation or not as he wishes. So once again, it's about like asking and then taking no gracefully, right? Like, like asking, would you like to have this conversation? And if somebody says no, then, uh, asking again and not having that lead me to think, oh, people don't want to talk about this. Therefore I won't ask again, right? Like people have days, they have weeks, they have months, they have years when they might or might not want to talk about things. And that doesn't mean that the time won't come. That is so true. So don't be afraid to 
keep on asking because, like I said, there have been times in periods where you don't want to talk about it, but there are times when you do want to talk about it. But the fact that you keep on asking and you're still doing the work behind the scenes as well just needs to know that that person knows that you're there and you're doing the right thing. And that's so critical. So important. This is like very contrary to my psychology where, you know, if, if you don't want to talk about something like I have a lot of receptors in me to like pull back from that. Right. As somebody who's just because of the way I grew up in the, you know, like the sort of peacekeeper I was with as a little kid with divorcing parents, you know, like in that space. And so I have to constantly fight that reflex to constantly be pushing against, just put it out, just put it out. When it comes to um, talking about, anti-racism and allyship to you what does that look like within your organization but also on the wider the wider scale in the wider world because obviously you're bigger than just your organization as an individual so i think i'm still figuring that out like i i have ideas about it that are in motion right like how do i how do i make spaces that are more comfortable how do i make um make the possibility for conversations in a new way how to how do we intentionally just keep working to shift this experience you had of walking into that room? How do we make sure that this is a thing that we talk about, that we are acting on? Like I, I have, we're running experiments. I have questions about that. And it might take me the rest of my life to really figure it out. Maybe, it, maybe it's not figure outable, you know, maybe it, it, it's, it's like a, a quest that is itself worthy Mm. how do you think about it how do you think about it as we're having this conversation it's for me it's about action it's about action over over words i think that for me shows that someone really is um an ally Mm. when it comes to anti-racism it's not staying silent it's actually talking about it for one for me that's like yeah you definitely understand why that why you need to do that and then you start by you doing that you're shining a spotlight on what the problem actually is so that people are realized about it and then you can start doing some work on it and that's where the allyship comes in because for me it's like you said at the start it's uh, when it comes to privilege and the racial structure that's been built up and it's something that that was created by us so it's something that needs to be in a sense dismantled and broken down by those who are actually in that space and therefore they need to understand the power and the privilege that they have which we've talked about and then start using that to actually help shift things by working together yeah. so no one is literally just working side by side together and having that equality and fairness and just seeing us together and then moving forward that's how things are going to start to shift and change so i've been very much focused on a lot of the for example other companies have made their statements and then you start delving behind the scenes you're like actually Statements are great, but yeah, right. behind the scenes, behind your leadership, behind the way your company operates, they're just words. So you need some actual tangible steps and tangible actions behind them. And then people can buy into that and people can start to believe that actually there is something different about it right now. Yeah. This move to action, move from words and move from intention mm-hmm. and like working on myself and, and working on my intentions, working on my my sort of cognitive biases. I've been like doing that work, you know, like I'm over here, I'm doing my work. And it's just, it's not, like, that's outrageously slow. Like, what is that? Like, I, like that's great. Like, I think, you know, I, I don't feel sad that I have been working on it and doing my work. Um, and at the same time, this is not going to change, you know, <laughs> systemic racism, right? 
it's like, how do we, how, how do we create opportunities? This, this idea of, of asking people of color to come into our program for free, right? Like this is a really that's to change who, who we are together, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's so that like, we didn't offer four scholarships or five scholarships. We said like, let's see if we can get 30 people, you know, and in a class that was like, like 80 people, 30 people is a lot of people, right? Um, you know, let's see if we can get a bunch of people in the room so that when they come onto Zoom, you know, they're going to see a lot of faces that look familiar to them. They're going to, they're going to see, they're going to be able to walk into a breakout room. And even if we do the breakout rooms randomly, they're going to be able to see faces that look like them. We're asking questions like, Hey, do you want us to do the breakout rooms randomly? Or would you like to be with other coaches of color in your breakout room? Would you like us? We're asking questions like, you know, we have a little mentoring program in there. We're asking questions like, would you rather be mentored in a trio of color and with a coach of color? Like we're asking those questions. If everybody says yes, we don't have, we don't have that many coaches of color who mentor, right? So we're going to have to figure that out. Like it's about figuring it out. And sometimes they say yes. And sometimes they say no, and we're just starting. But I, I, I feel like we're in this turbocharged learning space. So we're at least starting to take action that will then lead to mistakes, which will lead to learning, which will lead to action. And we are trying to be like very, very open to getting it wrong, to being told that we've gotten it wrong, to learning how to get it less wrong next time. Like this is, this is our, our mission is getting it less wrong next time. This is what we're trying to do. What would you say to organizations and people who are struggling to get into that space of, let's just, we're going to get it wrong. We know we're going to get it wrong, but we're willing to try because this is so important and something needs to change. For us, we've been really looking at what's our identity. Like what's me, was my identity as somebody who doesn't um, like wander into a place where I'm hurting people or making terrible mistakes where people are going to give me like negative feedback and say, you're doing this badly. Like this, this piece that you read, I must've written 20 drafts of that piece. And I would send it out. People would send it back and say, you can't say this. You can't say this. You can't say this. And everybody would say that about some other part of it. And, you know, talking to myself about, so how, how hard is this for you compared to how hard it is for those other moms? Right? Like, really that's the comparison. Like you think it's hard. It's not hard. It's not hard. This is, this is like, this is like putting some of my identity on the line. It's like putting some of my preferences on the line. It's putting my desire to create, you know, beautiful spaces for people to come to and not wanting people to come to the spaces unless they're beautiful. That's, that's like me. That's my ego that we're talking about. And so how do we, how do I look at that and say, thank you to my ego. Thank you. Like you've really helped me. We've created a lot of beautiful places. You know, many good things have come out of this. And right now you are in the way right now. You are, you are not helping me do this hard thing that's on my edge. And so I'm going to, I'm going to need to push ahead. One of the um, things you've talked about previously, part of your adult development model has been that self-transforming. And I was thinking about that and thinking about race 
mm. and how there's they kind of go hand in hand. Mm. So um, I was going to ask you, can you expand on what self-transforming is? And then from your perspective, how does that actually apply to race and actually making a change to move things forward? Yeah, so so as we grow and change over time, sometimes, rarely, but sometimes people come into this place that most traditions would have named wisdom, right? Like most ancient traditions have always had this idea of a, um, a moment where it's no longer about you and your ideas, but it's about what can we weave together from the collective, right? What, what can we, how are we together making each other up and how can that making each other up lead to something that's never been before, right? And one of the core pieces of it is to be able to notice yourself, notice where you're getting in your way and, and notice, notice across differences, across these divides that used to feel like this is the stuff that's me. And this is the stuff that's you that actually that's much more connected, much more of a, a single piece than these two totally separate pieces and that there's some of me in you and there's some of you in me. And this question about how do we then take that and create something new? And your question about races, you require diversity to, to grow to that place. You require different perspectives. You require things that pull you outside yourself and offer you new ways of being, new ways of seeing the world, new ways of experiencing the world. And without that, you can't grow. Like you can't grow. And and it's one of the things about adult development is that that developmental space wasn't even that important in a world that was much simpler, where people mostly stayed with their own kind, you know, where you learned your profession at the feet of your father. And then that was your profession. It was your grandfather's profession. You stayed in your same village and you mostly had people that your family had been around for generations. Like, like we both couldn't develop and we also didn't need to that much. And now you look at this world if we can't take each other's perspectives or at least try, if we can't build things together, I, I sometimes think about what it means, what the world has lost. Like this is, this is not thinking about, indiv- I think a lot about the individual pain of systemic race, racism, but I think about what the world has lost in terms of the science that didn't happen right? The poetry that didn't get written, the art that didn't get made, the music that didn't happen. Like, obviously it takes my breath away. It takes my breath away. What we, what we have lost as a, as a human race, because we've let this thing divide us and people with power have taken advantage of their power and crippled us all in a way. Mm. that when they talk about um, race and power, it's always a very interesting one because I think that's what it is. It's about shifting that power and things have been done for such a long time. It's kind of hard to start to change that for people to actually get their mind around the fact that they have to actually let go of some of that part to get that diversity. But then the flip side of that is exactly what you just talked about. Well, actually, if you let go of some of that power and you get that diversity in there, you get a much better world. You get a much 
beautiful world with so much imagination that can be released and so many things that we haven't thought about can be created. But that will only happen if you step into that self-transformation and be like, actually, something does really really need to change, something really needs to shift. And that's going to mean me losing something that I might not have thought about before, but I need to think about to drive that chain forward. Yeah, every what adult development teaches us is that every step farther into our development is mm. is to lose something. We always have to lose something. We always have to give something up. And the thing that comes is a bigger space. I mean, you see it. We had I live in central London and we had an anti-Black Lives Matter protest last week. Like it just blows my mind, right? blows my mind. And so you, and, and what you see is like, these people are terrified, right? They're, they're looking at what they might lose and they're terrified. And so, and it makes them angry and it makes them afraid and it makes them violent and it makes them terrifying. It's like, how do we breathe into the space that says there is no progress without losing something that you had? Those people who have been clinging on, there's a better world ahead. It's like, Development teaches us that you put down what you have and then something more wonderful emerges. Mm. Um, but that is, a, that is an act of trust and faith. And this is not a world overflowing with trust and faith. Mm. It is and it isn't though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> That's why you get, you, get you get the mixture. Because And one thing I have been so happy even in the midst of this pain to see, has been the the way so many people, especially the younger generation, have come together and just been like, actually, no, this is not right. I've seen a lot of even conversations happening between um, grandparents and their kids where their grandparents come from a completely different generation and they are not for this. And they're like, no, this is not right. And then you're having younger kids and be like, I can't talk to my grandparents anymore because they don't completely understand. And I think my grandparent might be racist. So you're seeing that shift in families. And then that's got on a global scale of people like, no, this, this, this does not work. Something definitely needs to change. And we can't go through this yet again, because we've seen this happen time and time again. But something, I think it's, especially based on what we just went through with COVID and the world coming together, it was like, that was humanity coming together to try and do something. And now we are going back what it seems like 131 years back to slave days where this oppression is still there and something really needs to shift forward. Yeah, I think the COVID thing is a really important thing you bring up because on the one hand, it meant a few things, right? On the one hand, it meant that we we went inside to protect each other, mm-hmm. right? And we particularly went into, inside to protect the most vulnerable people. Yeah. And so for me, there was something very beautiful in that move. As you say, the whole world comes together. We're all looking at this common thing, right? So that there's that thing. And we discover how fast the world can shift if it has to. Like you look at systemic issues like I travel too much. I fly too much. I use too much carbon. Like this is just, and I look at it and I know that it's true and I know it's a problem and you know, I buy a lot of carbon offsets to help me in some way, but actually this is a problem. And I, we talk about it and I've said, I, there's nothing I can do about it. Right. Well, you know what? Now I don't fly anymore. Right. <laughs> right. Like that stopped. And so, so the, the idea that things that we said six months ago 
there's just nothing I can do about that. Like, that's just too big. How could we shift that thing? Right. Well, now we see it shifts. Mm. Enough happens and it shifts. And so I think for me, that's, that's the other part of the hope, right? It's the, it's the, we can, as a human race, we can gather together to protect the vulnerable, to protect the people who need protection, to make the world better for them by giving up a little bit of our freedom for them. Oh, well, that's actually a pretty useful correlate, isn't it, to what needs to happen now. And then there's this idea that it can happen all at once. Like an amazing change can happen all at once. And what would that look like? I know we've there's been a lot of research done on diversity and inclusion and what that looks like in boardrooms and families and all that. But from obviously your your standpoint, you're educated. I want to know what you're taking, what you think that would actually look like in the world where that actually exists. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but but what I what I think I know is that we are the size of the world you live in is in part made up of the questions you ask yourself, mm-hmm. right? You ask small questions, you sort of live in a small mental or emotional space, a space of few possibilities. And what I know is that the more diversity there is in a room, the more questions there are, the more possibilities there are, the more opportunities to create a thing that's not been created ever before and like the scale of our problems as a human race is just massive right like if we don't find a way to really expand and shift and transform our thinking our actions our interactions if we don't find that way in the next how much time do we have a decade right on the, on the human change scale fast. If, if we don't do that, I just don't see how we'll make it. I just don't see how we'll make it. And so however it happens, we need each other. In your book, um, Things Simple Habits, you talked about three habits of mind. And you just talked about right now asking different and better questions and then multiple perspectives of what was on them as well. How do you get through to a leader of an organization around the kind of questions they need to be asking themselves as well as asking their their wider team. If they are still living in that uncomfortableness and doing it over there like you talked about. I think that there's a pressure for change that builds up in us and around us, right? The thing that seems to lead to development is like some some pressure that happens in us where the ways we used to be no longer work in the current circumstances. Like there's something broken. And it's so painful that we have to change who we are in order to make that pain go away. Cause, cause changing who we are, that sucks, right? Like that's a, that's a hard thing to do. Um, and we would pretty much rather change most things, <laughs> But that, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then there comes a moment when you can't change most things anymore, and you have to you have to change you. And I, I think this is what's happening for leaders and organizations all over the world is that they're discovering that the that the world they were seeing was like one small version 
of the world that existed and that there are all these other questions. There are all these other perspectives. There are all these other experiences that not only did they not have access to, but they didn't notice they didn't have access to, right? Like that's the thing. They weren't, they weren't saying, oh, I'm not going to take the perspective of a person of color right now. Like that, they, they didn't have that thought. They just didn't have any thought, right? So they didn't even notice what they weren't seeing, which is what most of us, we don't notice what we don't see. And so the, as they begin to notice what they don't see, I think a pressure forms in them as it, as it is in me, right? Like you see it in me that says, I, I cannot be who I have been and we cannot be who we have been together. And we have to find another way. And if it's aligned with your values and the people I work with are so smart and their values are so superb, justice is aligned with everybody's values. I mean, if justice isn't aligned with your values, like, like why bother? I don't, I don't know those people. I don't work with those people, right? Like, I don't know who those people are, but if justice is aligned with your values, then there are some things you can't unsee. And this call for action that you made earlier, like this is a more persistent, it's a more clear, it's a more significant necessity now. They say systems change slowly, 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 and then all at once. And I guess that's what that's what I tell myself about the world right now. What do you think? What do you think it's going to look like? It's, I think like you, it's a, it's a hard one. When I, in my head, when it, what it looked like would be a board or companies that represent their demographic that they serve. Mm. So it will be, for example, um, one of the reasons why I went into what I do now was when I was working in corporate, I walked into my organization one day, did it for years, and I literally just looked around me and I was like, there's no one who looks like me. There was 300 plus people on that floor. I can't keep on doing this. And have my son and my daughter, if they ever wanted to step into this same industry and have to go through what I've got gone through to get to where I'm at right now, it just can't happen. And something really needs to like shift. That's why it's there to wanting to leadership your culture and I'm working on that kind of things. And when I think about the future, I think about a future where that is not their reality. Yeah. Where they do go into organizations and there's every single person there and they just feel straight at home. They don't, they don't have that barrier to deal with. Where they are judged on their skills and their values and their experiences and what they bring to the table, not judged on their their color and that's seen as a barrier. Where they can buy a car and not have to worry about how many times am I going to get stuck or be walking down the street with their friends and be worrying about the police or walk into a store and be followed by a security guard, which has been some of my experiences. Yeah. It's those kind of things when I think about that's where world we live in. It'd be a world where <laughs> recently the, um, I forgot was a politician was on TV a couple of weeks ago and I asked him a question, which is a very straightforward question, which was how many black people in the cabinet, for example. And he was stuttering and stuttering and he said, oh, there is... There are two, and he mentioned two Asian people because he went on the black on, on the BAM using the the BAM banner, and I'm like, no, they're different people. The answer was no. It's a world where you don't have to stutter about that. We can actually reel up the steps and be like, actually, there's none. That's straightforward, or there's one or two, whatever. But that's the world we live in, where everyone's just straightforward. You don't need to tiptoe around the subject because. It doesn't need to be tiptoed around. Mm. It's a lived experience for everyone, and that's that's kind of what I think about. And obviously, it's going to take 
a long time to get there. I completely understand that because it's it wasn't built. This didn't come about just yesterday. It's been built over centuries. I understand that, but it starts with now, and actually doing that that work right now. And that's why that's the world I see doing the work right now. So the future generations coming up behind us have a completely different experience. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. This hope, it's hope for our kids. Mm. Hope for hope for a world where you could be born into and have a totally different experience. And we know this is possible. We know that people have been born into worlds and had different experiences than their parents. Yeah. This happened. I was going to ask you, your experience growing up in Washington, going to mostly black school, how was that for you? Well, I mean, when you're a kid, it's what you know, right? Like, but it was it was funny to um, to come out and learn about white privilege, and um, you know, people to ask questions like, how many how many people of color were on your homecoming court in college? Like, I mean, in high school, this is a like this is an American thing. Um, it was like they're all black, right? Like, um, you know, how many pe- people of color were? You know, what kind of music did you listen to at your high school prom? Like, how likely were you to know the music versus somebody somebody of color? Yeah, like a hundred percent. So it was funny. It was just this different experience. And, and it's not in any way to suggest that there wasn't racism in, in high school, right? Like, or that I grew up in some kind of racism-free space. It's not that at all. Um, but I, I think it gave me the experience, of, which, which is rare for an American woman, of knowing what it's like to be a minority. In my elementary school, I went to a, in the DC public schools, to a, a, a Spanish English bilingual school. And um, I got there in fourth grade and everybody could speak two languages but me. So I felt like a language minority. You know, growing up in the, in the US, I had this experience of feeling stupid because I didn't know Spanish and feeling the shame of not being able to speak the common language, not being able to understand the teachers or the books or, you know, like being out in the hall, reading a book, a, a slow book, a book for you know much younger kids in Spanish while the class was learning more advanced stuff in Spanish. So I had that experience. And then I had this experience of, you know, I think my school is 20% white, something like that. I think I... It's got to change who I am, right? It's got to change how I see the world. So I didn't have that thing where the, that some might people describe, like, oh, I went to college and I met a black person for the first time. Like, this was, I can't remember a time when I didn't know people of different races. I can't remember. And I think part of it is just, like, the idea that there would be racism that was about color, that people would judge other people based on color, I knew a lot of black people. They were really different from each other, right? I knew a lot of white people. They were really different from each other too. And some of them were nice and some of them were not nice, right? Like it was high school. We were awful to each other. There were, there were mean kids. There were scary kids. There were great kids. There were brilliant dancers, singers, writers, and just seems outrageous to me that we would create this divide, this extraordinary divide between us. 
It just seems like what a waste, what an unbelievable waste. And how, as a mother, do you talk to your kids about race? Oh, I talk about it all the time. My daughter's just finished college. Uh, she's a psychology major, and she's way more current on white fragility and whiteness issues because she took a, this was one, one of her passions. And so I send her my piece when I, my pieces when I write them. No, mom, that's like such a white fragility thing to say. <laughs> such a fragile white woman. Oh my God, you can't say that. So yeah, we talk about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Yesterday she said to me, you raised us to be really egalitarian, but I don't think we had enough conversations when we were little about racism and the injustice of it. She said, I, I think you should have been more aggressive in this than you were. And you know, she's probably right. Next generation, right? She's probably mm-hmm. right. I was always, always, always wanting to give my kids the message that they needed to look at their privilege and under all kinds of privileges, every kind of privilege they had. They need to look at it and not think that's because I did something. That's because I earned it. Right. Like, like this idea of unearned privilege is so powerful for me. And, you know, there are privileges you earn for sure. But if you're a white middle-class kid, they're all coded in privileges you didn't earn, you know, I have a doctorate from Harvard. I earned that. I worked super hard to do that. There's white privilege all over that thing, right? Like there's, yeah. So my kids push me to have harder conversations. That's really good. I love the the two-way feedback between both of you, to be honest, with your son, daughter, and you, what you're learning from them, but vice versa. And you can learn from both different generations as well. That's, that's really, really good, actually. We're trying. How old are your kids? They're 13 and 11. So, yeah, so um, my son gets a lot more. So he's had a bit more experience with it as well. Things already happened to him. Um, My daughter's been, I think she's a little bit more naive Mm -hmm. at 11 and been a bit bit more shielded as well with her upbringing. Still having those kind of conversations, but she doesn't completely get it just yet. But my son definitely does. And he's expressed himself. He he wrote a song about it like last week, expressing how he's feeling about the whole thing. But it's also been us bring them up to be like actually this is this does not define who you are that's not a barrier we're not gonna create a lifestyle where that's gonna be your excuse that's not how we've lived our lives and we've tried to be examples but like actually that's not how we define ourselves so we're gonna keep on pressing on so they've learned that all the way throughout that that's not a barrier to you you're gonna yes it's gonna be harder for you but that doesn't make a difference just because it's harder doesn't mean it's impossible so you need to keep on pushing through that so that's how we've, we've brought them up to be honest yeah yeah, it's just a, an extra layer of trickiness, right? As a parent, just an extra layer of trickiness to everything. Yeah, I'd love to hear your son's song. Yeah, I'll send it to you. I'll send three to you when we finish. I'll send three to you. Yeah. And just before we we wrap up, I want to know what would you say to people who are still silent and still struggling with that? I don't know what to say, or I'm going to try and avoid this or I don't see color, whatever excuse or statement I like to throw out there, what would you say to them? 
I guess I want to first say, I, I see that too, right? Like I see, I see what it is to live in a world where you want it to be easier. You want it to, to go away if you don't look at it. I understand the charms of the, that magical thinking. And I also understand the pain of looking at it. I understand when you start to unpack what it is to really look at whiteness. I think you have to go into dark places. You have to feel ashamed you have to feel grief. You have to feel culpable. And so those feelings are not fun, right? Like those are not fun. And, and I guess I want to say that every time a white person turns away from those feelings, that's white privilege because we can. And if we say we don't want it, we say we want a just world, then we have to notice when we're being unjust, that's not, that's an unjust move. That is a, a move that says, I'm going to use this thing I didn't earn and I'm going to take the easy road because I can. And I'm going to see that there are other people and they can't. And I'm going to take the easy road anyway. So I think we need to know, like when we're being silent, we are ourselves in an unjust state and then look at ourselves without that. Right. And I guess the last thing to say is I posted this thing on LinkedIn and I, I had some advice that said, don't do this. Don't put yourself out. This is not your field. You don't have the expertise to do this. You don't have the the backing to like don't don't do this. And I got three I got three emails from black men. The first three things I got were from three black men. You were one of them. They all said some version of thank you. You made my day a little bit better because I felt, oh, I felt a little bit seen. I felt like my experience was a little bit shared or noticed or cared for by you. And it made a difference to me. And I will cherish those three letters forever. So that's why. So we need to talk. We need to talk. We're going to get it wrong. We're going to be stupid. We're going to hear, no, I don't want to talk to you about it. That's okay. We don't want to be forcing our way in. We just want to be opening up our hearts, opening up our mouths and seeing if we can make a difference. That's everything I know how to do right now. I'll probably know how more things to do later, but today that's all I know. I can't think of a better way to finish this. Because <laughs> that just captured it perfectly. That, that was really, really good. And I just want to say I appreciate having this conversation with you. I appreciate the blog post that you put up. And I appreciate the action steps and the work that you are actually doing, both internally and personally, but within your company and try to change the landscape of things going forward as well and opening things up really really that's the way forward that's the model forward for everyone to be honest all of us included so um thank you for that and it's been great talking to you thank you for this conversation thank you for asking for it thank you i hope you've enjoyed today's episode of everyday leadership make sure you like you comment and subscribe to the episode tell your friend who can tell their friends and i'll see you soon